From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. So, Michael, do you think acting with speed is important for competitiveness? I do. I mean, in the technology field, we sometimes say that speed itself is a strategy. So in many cases, it makes a really big difference. Well, our guest today posits that the EU's focus on regulation keeps standards high, but potentially at the expense of speed, and that affects competitiveness. I'm very interested to hear what he has to say. So welcome to our podcast, Marco. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, you're an economist and a European to your fingertips with a long career at the European Commission, the quintessential man inside, as your book title says, the man inside, a European journey through two crises. So tell us a bit about yourself, where you were brought up and educated and how you forged your career in what I suppose we'd call European governance. Oh, thank you, uh, Janet. So I did my... uh... Degree, first degree in uh, uh, University of Florence, then I went to Oxford, and then uh, after a brief academic spell uh, and uh, actually a year working at the Research uh, Institute of Fiat in Turin, I joined the European Commission and um, have been there for uh, 35 years, uh, actually, till last April. So a very long journey indeed. Was it hard to leave the European Commission or do you feel that the European University Institute is carrying on that work in a sense? I mean, European University Institute, in a sense, combines uh, the best of both worlds. Uh, I mean, I could go back home because I'm from Florence. The European University Institute is in Florence. Uh, At the same time, uh, um, remaining in an international environment uh, and dealing with the European matters. So... Uh, yes, it's a good, a very good landing zone uh, for me. There is a little bit of a struggle between peace of mind and adrenaline. Uh, so being out of the l- line of fire, in a sense, um, misses that elements there, which uh, which is um, which I have been to, to which I got used over over many years. A quieter life, but maybe less exciting. No, exciting nonetheless, because the debate on Europe is uh, so lively. And the main job here uh, in Fiesola, the European University Institute, is to launch what I have called an EMU laboratory. There are several uh, topics where the debate is essentially stuck. Mm? So from fiscal union, banking union. So I think there is, an, there is a need of a different take, you know, um, a different approach, and that's what I'm trying to say to to do in Florence. And the principle of a laboratory is that you may uh, devise a new molecule and everything goes uh, well, or it can explode in your face, and then uh, you have to pick up the pieces. Um, but there is, um, I think, the idea of um, being a bit less risk risk averse. Uh, I think is what is needed in Europe at large. So to be more bold um, and say more bold things. Well, I think we would love to discuss um, some of those big issues, the fiscal union, the capital union, etc. But be- before that, I just wanted to ask you to sort of take the temperature of where Europe is now. How's it handling what are very worrying and troubling times? I mean, globally, but how is Europe doing? Europe is um, dealing with a crisis uh, which are uh, almost existential in nature. Mm? So they question very much the way of uh, 
the way we do policy coordination, the way the European institutions are uh, are built. Latest book, not the one you mentioned at the beginning, but the one that was only published uh, in Italian uh, back in April, asks whether Jean Monnet was right. Jean Monnet, uh, one of the founding fathers of Europe, who famously said that Europe will progress through the crisis and will be the result of the sum of the solutions um, given to those uh, to those crises. Uh, so this is in partly true. At the same time, not always the responses uh, to the Europe- to the crisis are uh, satisfy what I called in the book uh, the Monet compatibility test, uh, meaning um, coherence in economic terms, in institutional terms, and in political terms. So um, what we have to do now really is uh, to deal with the present with the present crisis. Uh, Remembering that, uh, remembering the mistakes uh, or the good things that we have done in the previous, uh, in handling the previous crisis, and uh, it is uh, clearly difficult. But the, um, I think, a common challenge in this, uh, in handling these crises, is uh, to let put it put it like that, uh, to lower the political discount rate of politicians. Huh? What does it mean? It means to basically lengthen the time horizon. So to be less worried about the the very immediate and and take a broader view. And if they take a broader view, they will soon realize that this is handling the war, uh, in handling the energy crisis as well as COVID, that the national dimensions dimension is far too small to provide an effective answer. You have written about the breakthrough in that sense that happened during the pandemic. Um, the EU recovery plan was a supranational or had a large supranational element to it. And it seems to me that you believe that the pandemic, that was a useful breakthrough and that there's a new acceptance of um, responses having to be on that larger scale, the, the European scale. Absolutely. Um I mean the um, the book you mentioned at the, be- at the beginning uh, has a subtitle that you recall this the journey through two crises and the two crises are the global financial crisis uh, following the um, collapse of Lehman Brothers in uh, uh, in 2008 uh, which then morphed in Europe into the uh, sovereign debt crisis so 2011 2012 13 basically until um, de facto the uh, whatever it takes of Mario Draghi in July 20, 2012, which uh, I think was the most effective response uh, to the crisis. And then in 20, um, uh, so 2019, 20, 2020, then with the COVID crisis, the answer was substantially different. I think there is one element which is fundamental in understanding why the uh, re- response was a different one. And it is that uh, um, the nature of the crisis was different. I mean, during the global financial crisis and the sovereign debt crisis, what prevailed in Europe, what was has what has been called uh, the moral hazard paradigm. Mm-hmm. What does it mean essentially? Is um, I mean that crisis was seen as um, arising from policy mistakes in the financial regulation sphere in fiscal uh, policy, uh, etc. So 
the, the moral hazard paradigm, which uh, is that if you provide help, um, then uh, country would same would make the same mistakes uh, later on. So, so the it, and it is a very costly uh, paradigm, and we risked our uh, our neck actually with that when uh, there was a proposal back uh, in 2015. You remember the debate on Grexit is to throw Grexit out of the eurozone, and that would have been a terrible mistake. It would have led to you know calling in question the integrity of the single currency. Now. That paradigm was not applicable to the COVID. You know, that with COVID, uh, you know, it was it was an exogenous shock. Uh, it was not the fault of anybody. One can always think about, uh, you know, capitalism should be, you know, better to, uh, to not to create those uh, problems. But clearly it was, uh, it was an exogenous external shock. So not imputable to policy uh, mistakes. So that helped. Uh, to devise uh, a, a much more substantive uh, policy response, and he went through, you know, the vaccine coordination uh, uh, purchases, uh, and in particular in the economic sphere, to the next generation EU, and what was called uh, uh, even before that the Sure program, which is support of the union uh, to labor to the labor market. So it was the European dimension clearly dominated uh, there, and it was an extremely successful response. I mean, the markets, which uh, which feared a disintegra- literal disintegration of Europe, uh, was immediately uh, reassured. I mean, at the end of the day, and I have talked uh, and I continue to talk to, you know, portfolio managers, market participants, uh, um, investors, when it comes to the crunch, they are looking for political leadership. So that's what uh, Europe showed in the response to COVID. They are not looking for, you know, the clever technical solution. They, uh, they need to see that there is, you know, a collective leadership and there is a collective pilot in the plane. That's what we, uh, we did uh, with the response to COVID. Just talking about the pandemic, there was a a sort of stuttering start to the vaccine program. The decision was made in Europe that the European Commission should run the run the program, run the procurement, and it was slow. Um, and some of the nation states, the member states, got very frustrated and they went their own way. And so that European solidarity, to an extent, broke down. Um, is there a speed problem with? Europe uh, and with the European governing institutions. No, you are absolutely right. It was a slow start. It was a it was a stumbling uh, uh, a start. However, I mean, if one looks in retrospect, it was a, you know, it was eventually you know a stunning uh, success. I mean, had we not just uh, as economists, we tend to look in terms of to reason in terms of counterfactual. So, what could have happened if? And then, I mean, if one tries to uh, rehearse uh, the handling of the crisis with with every single country in Europe going its own way, clearly the large countries could have uh, managed uh, and probably managed reasonably well, but many others, I think, would have been in deep, very deep troubles with the risk of fragmentation in real terms, in financial terms, uh, etc. 
Going back to this issue of speed of action, um, NGI is looking at competitiveness all the time. And we've been looking at European competitiveness. And one of the issues that inevitably comes up with business is that regulation is slow, processes are slow, it's difficult to get things done. There are innovators, there are fantastic companies, but you just cannot commercialize because the regulatory system is ponderous. Do you think that that is a real issue? It is, uh, it is a real issue, for sure. Uh, okay, let me um, make a little qualification uh, on, uh, on this. I think speed is of the essence, but sometimes excessive speed leads to mistake. Mm? So let's take, for instance, uh, uh, the, uh, the example I gave before of the Grexit debate. So whether Grexit should be, uh, be, uh, remain part of the, of the Eurozone, had the European Union, the European Council, so the leaders and the ministers decided on a speedy way at, the, at that time, probably they would have decided to let you, uh, Greece go. So I think that would have been a mistake. So the, uh, the issue here is certainly speed, uh, but in a robust uh, manner. At the same time, what I think you indicate is uh, absolutely key. And uh, there, is an, uh, there is an issue of speed and there is an issue of uh, combining regulatory decisions with money. There was, um, when talking about the uh, response to the IRA, uh, so the Inflation Reduction Act of the, uh, of the US, I think there was a business leader who indicated that uh, you know the US has uh, a business case and Europe makes a law. Mm-hmm. So I think the the regulatory element is important. I think it becomes a standard uh, throughout the world. You know, let's go back to vaccine. I mean, the green pass that we devised at the time has become a standard throughout the throughout the world. So and the soft power of Europe, you know, shaking the rules of the game is an important element. It should not be, you know, disregarded or belittled. Um, actually, there had been, uh, the, you know, some books in, in, uh, a few years ago saying that, you know, rule, uh, Europe rules the world via the, its regulation. At the same time, when you come to artificial intelligence, to, you know, new technologies now, the speed is the, is, uh, the name of the game. Um, European companies tend to lag behind by themselves, in a sense, also because of the structure of the uh, industry structure that we, have, uh, that we have in Europe. So helping them to speed up, I think, is, uh, uh, is key. And here we have to combine uh, the regulatory budget with the real budget. MGI looked at European competitiveness in technology last year, and we looked at 10 what we call transversal technologies. They permeate across sectors. They're increasingly making the competitive weather. Um, and Europe is only ahead on two of the 10 and falling behind. China is forging ahead. US already had a very strong position. How can Europe play in that race? I think Europe is, uh, I mean, okay, let me f- formulate a question like this. Is, the, is Europe's business model sustainable? Um, and the answer is not in the medium term. 
What does it mean? Uh, and I broaden the question uh, uh, a bit from what you put on the table. I think there are essentially three elements which make the Europe's uh, European economic business model not sustainable looking forward. One is a macroeconomic issue. Uh, we have in Europe, you know, apart from the latest uh, the latest developments, but if you look at the developments over the past uh, several uh, several years since the the global financial crisis, is heavily dependent on external demand. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, a persistent current account surplus, two to three percent of GDP. So it means that uh, a large economic area in the world economy. The, that is Europe, is systematically subtracting demand from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, not the way a, a large economy should be uh, run. Uh, and I mean, it, it is it is fine for a small economy, but not for a large player. Mm-hmm. So this is the first point. The second point is demography. So Europe is demographically demographically stagnant. Mm-hmm. And we tend to, in a, in a sense, to throw the ball to the medium to long term uh, on this. But in reality, this uh, demographic uh, stagnation is already with us. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the developments of the pa- over the past 10 years, so the past 10 years, 65 plus a share of the population have increased by five points. And and uh, the share of the population between 16 and 49 has decreased by five points. So, so and this is large change in only 10 years. So I don't have to project to 2100 to see uh, the effect of the of demography. And the third dimension is precisely what you put on the table. I mean, uh, so Europe is drifting away from the technology frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a number of, it is strong in a number of technologies, but essentially on a more mature technology. Advanced, but mature. Those more forward-looking, it is clearly drifting away from the US uh, and, uh, and China. So from that viewpoint, I think it's uh, a Europe business model looking forward is not uh, sustainable. So we would have to tackle these issues in um in a very comprehensive manner. There is no, there is in this, there is no silver bullet. I think proper regulation to make sure that there is a level playing field and, and uh, security, predictability that's essential for business, combined with uh, investment, public, uh, and then fostering private private investment um, to make sure that there is a speed speeding up of the adoption of these technologies. And we know that there are many conditions that are needed in order to ease that process, you know, starting first and foremost uh, with the adaptation of the uh, human resources to that, um, to the completion of banking union and capital markets union. And I think what is key in this is to understand that Europe has set itself the, the goal of the green transition and the digital transition Unless we do this, we are not going to succeed neither in one nor in the other. And it's not just a question of speed. I mean, businesses talk about the fact that it's so much more difficult to scale 
in Europe. And that's partly a function of the fact that the single market is made up of different nations. Um, and there are antitrust rules, etc., etc. Is there a path forward that would allow companies, particularly in these fast-moving technological spheres, to move faster, to scale faster? I mean, we have in Europe uh, an, a, a structure, an in industry structure, that's what I, um, I referred to before, which uh, relies much more on small and medium-sized enterprises than in other parts of the uh, of the world. This reflects also some, you know, social preferences. Uh, what you have uh, in uh, firms which adopt these type of uh, technologies, they have a portfolio which highly turn high risk. Mm? So there you have. Uh, uh, in Europe, more conservative, uh, you know, bankruptcy uh, regimes than uh, than in the US, precisely because I mean the social preferences in Europe is for is more risk averse than in the US. But this, I don't think we can uh, afford that uh, any any longer. And I think again here it is important to review the bankruptcy laws within the single market to make sure that. Uh, these are different, uh, that the, the current differences are, are overcome. I think we will need to move away progressively from the bancocentric uh, uh, nature of the European economy. Typically, the kind of investments you are talking about, or you are, you are referring to, are, let me put it like that, they are long in ideas and short in collateral. So it, it would mean that, uh, you know, normal banks don't usually finance this type of investment. So you need equity, you need capital markets, and we are here in Europe only a fraction in terms of importance of the capital markets that you have in other parts of the world, in particularly in the U.S. Capital markets union is, uh, is stagnating, uh, so we'll need to, to not only complete to make sure that it works properly, and unless we do that, I think it's going to be very difficult to make sure that these uh, scaling up takes, um, you know, takes place. You have been the co-signatory of a new manifesto for Europe, um, which essentially it has seven elements, but essentially it's about a step change in European integration and a bigger role for the European Commission and the supranational institutions. Um, could you explain the thinking behind that? And then I'd like to explore the how that might affect the competitiveness issues that we've discussed. Yes, the manifesto was published at the beginning of, uh, of October. We take essentially an economic approach uh, to, uh, to this. And it tries to spell out precisely what I was trying to outline uh, before, namely the unsustainability in the medium term of the European business model and the need to uh, uh, make sure that policymakers realize that uh, they can, and here the manifesto says it explicitly, they can be individual followers or they can share, they can be leaders by sharing your sovereignty at the European uh, level. And if you look at the crisis we have gone through, and what we are going through uh, now, there is no solution that is uh, for which 
the uh, national dimension is the appropriate is the appropriate one. We talked about the, the COVID crisis and the need to respond to that. The energy crisis again, the response to Putin's war, and now the uh, the um, the crisis in the, in the in the Middle East with the ramifications that we are still not not seen. So on all this, it would be very important that Europe finds its uh, soul um, and provides the the proper the, the proper answers. So there are a number of uh, recommendations uh, uh, in this, and the recommendations uh, span from uh, reviewing substantially the EU budget to make sure that it's not uh, a relic of the past, but allocates the money where uh, the real priorities are calls for uh, the completion of capital markets union, banking union, with the issuance of a safe asset, um, uh, calls for the completion of the negotiations on the new stability and growth uh, and growth pact, that's also uh, very, uh, very important. And so a comprehensive agenda, which is going to be uh, key for... Uh, Making sure that Europe is, um, you know, well equipped to um, to respond to these challenges. In the manifesto, you talk about something more akin to a fiscal union, certainly a bigger budget, and the need for much larger automatic stabilizers, uh, which the US has. And you've you've talked about the US being able to cope with exogenous shocks better than Europe because it has those transfers. That has always proved politically difficult in Europe so far. You all talk about private risk sharing as opposed to public risk sharing, which would goes to your point about the banking union, capital markets union, and bolstering the financial side of things. If there is not uh, a move towards the fiscal policies that you want and larger automatic stabilizers, is action on the private risk sharing going to be enough? The answer is no. Uh, I think we will need a move on both fronts. It is true that um, if one compares uh, Europe to the US, uh, both we have, uh, we are not both federations, uh, but both we have, we are a currency union, at least for the 20 countries of the, of the Eurozone. And the stability uh, and the response to shocks in uh, Europe, relies more on national stabilizers. In the US, more on federal stabilizers. Uh, uh, 49 out of 50 states have uh, balanced budget constraints uh, constitutionally. Uh, so that is um, it's one uh, difference. But it is true that the major difference is the private risk sharing, both uh, in terms of capital flows and in terms of portfolio uh, allocation. So it is essential to uh, make progress on that front. Um, so capital markets union uh, would help in terms of capital flows and banking union in terms of portfolio uh, allocation. Uh, as I indicated before, uh, both uh, um, issues are you know, substantially stuck uh, uh, and we do not, we are not making uh, e- enough progress uh, on the, on those, uh, on those uh, issues. And we will have to, I think, uh, restart the, dis- the, um, the, the negotiations on that front, take on bank- banking union, basically 
Italy and uh, Germany painted themselves in uh, you know opposite corners. Um, we have to find a common ground on that front. And Capital Markets Union is less ideologically charged, but it is still, in terms of the working, a lot, a lot to do to make, uh, I think, to make a difference. So that will help. But in order to restart positively those debates, it is essential, and that will be one of the um, motivations from the EMU laboratory that I mentioned at the very beginning at the European University Institutes to have a different take. So I think what I have indicated before, namely that unless we uh, complete capital markets union, we do not, we are not going to make a success of the green and the digital transition. Unless we complete banking union, there is no way that the Europe would be an international currency you know, competing with uh, with the dollars because you do not, we do not have a safe asset that solidifies um, the the banking the banking union. So I think there is the geopolitical angle, the uh, double transition angle. I think it's a better way to convince politicians than appealing to risk sharing um, and risk uh, and risk reduction. And my initial answer was that. Um, not is not going to be enough to move only one in one direction because what we have learned throughout the crisis, in particular the global financial crisis, is that private risk sharing tends to dry out under intense shocks. So, uh, so the two are actually complementary and it is essential that you have stronger public risk sharing together with stronger private risk sharing, moving ahead on both fronts. It was interesting what you said about the business person who said, you know, in America, we have a business plan and Europe has a law. We've just published at MGI a piece about Asia being on the cusp of a new era. And one of the hallmarks that we found for what is uh, beginning to be an Asia block um, is that it's it's all about trade. It's all about business. There is no institutional framework. There isn't even a political agreement between the economies of Asia. So it's a very, very different model, but it's proved to be extremely successful. So I suppose my question to you is, is there a different model to the European regulatory model that could work well in this disrupted a very quick, rapidly changing, technologically driven world. Okay, let me say, um, let me answer this, um, you know, fundamental question in uh, in a in a broader in 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 a broader setting. First, um, Europe in the future will continue to come from Venus. It will not come from Mars. That was said by uh, you know neocons uh, twenty years ago, and I think it's going to be uh, the same uh, in the future. So this means that uh, we are in our DNA, European DNA. There is opening to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So we are used to and and pretty good at positive sum games. Mm-hmm. So we do not embrace a logic of power, which is uh, essentially the one of uh, 
zero sum games or if or even negative sum games mm-hmm. uh so i think we have in a sense that soft power through the regulation through opening through um multi rules rules based system i think has a lot to give to the world mm-hmm. it is now unfashionable somewhat outdated maybe because the logical power is the one that is uh, that dominates uh, that dominates but if one looks beyond the the current issues think about africa for instance etc i think we need uh, to remain open we need to give chances and and strive po- for positive some games uh it is a world that is uh, shifting from being multilateral to multipolar and what you mentioned in uh, for asia i think is a, is a development uh, that is uh, uh, that is a relevant one at the, the same time i think it would be a mistake to compare what is happening there as uh, a division of the block on, in blocks as we had in the old times in the in the cold war but i think we still have uh, a strong assets uh, to also in terms of economic policy uh, policy making So in this world here I think um since Europe has a lot to do to reform itself to overcome those uh, weaknesses uh, of its uh, business model that I indicated before speed is going to be of the essence putting the money where our mouth is in terms of priorities is also fundamental um but at the same time I think we should continue to provide the world with them with a model that is uh, does not embrace a disruptive logical pure power but strive for uh, you know soft power and positive some games well that is fascinating and and thank you so much marco for uh, joining us on our podcast thank you very much janet it was a pleasure Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com/mgi or at mckinsey_mgi on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chuli. Our audio engineer is Colin Moore. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.